It's that time again to open the pantry door and take a look at some of the ingredients that are lurking on the shelves. In the last two installments of What's in Your Pantry, we took a deep dive into vinegar, cake flour, turmeric, and mustard. This week, we're going to get a little salty with a deep dive into a bowl of ramen, followed by the history of sour salt. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm loving our fall slash winter weather that we're starting to fall into. See what I did there? That was very clever. Thank you. Brandon actually had asked the other day about why we love fall so much. And my opinion was that it's a time to pull out all those warm, bulky sweaters and blankets. It's the time of really good food that just fills you and makes you feel warm and tingly. What do you think? Why do you think we love fall so much? I think that we love fall for those very same reasons. I mean, there's a time for everything. And I think that we get to the end of the summer and we've had all of these really wonderful, fresh foods. And as we move into these cooler seasons, it just feels right to move into those warming types of foods, chilies and soups and roasted things, roasted chickens mm. and even roasted vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know what? Soup is probably one of my all-time favorite foods. So it's no wonder that when I opened up my pantry door, my eye fell on a packet of instant ramen. And that's what I thought I would bring to our conversation today about what's in my pantry. So I know that many folks in our As We Eat family might not really relate so strongly to a love of instant ramen. But I can guarantee you that any Generation X latchkey kid that might be listening is going to have really big feelings about having a couple of packets of instant ramen in the house. And I will actually confess to being mildly obsessed with ramen ever since grade school in the 80s. So obsessed, actually, that I once made my mother a card that read, I love you more than top ramen. And she was not flattered, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and explain to her, but mom, I really love top ramen. So I may be a ramen super fan, but I do know that my peers ate it too. Instant ramen was found at my friends' houses, on Girl Scout camping trips, in school thermoses, and basically every college coast to coast. A simple cup noodle can be found at any convenience store. With just a little hot water in a few minutes, you have a tasty meal or a snack. And I know that the generations that follow mine are tapped into it too as a mainstay of cheap, tasty, fast food, but also as a touchstone of Japanese pop culture. Before we chew on instant ramen history, let me basically start with describing what a basic ramen dish is. Ramen, in its truest, purest, most authentic form, is a Japanese noodle soup typically composed of a rich stock and Chinese-style noodles. 
The soup is flavored with either miso or soy sauce and topped with a wide array of items. My favorites are chashu pork, nori, which is dried sheets of seaweed, menma, pickled or fermented bamboo shoot, a soft boiled egg, sometimes corn, scallions or green onions. Practically every region of Japan has its own variation of ramen, sometimes with a rich pork bone broth or served with thicker noodles, or that the noodles are actually just dipped into a sauce rather than eaten as a soup. There is a lot of history in Japanese culture surrounding how to make a proper ramen broth, how to properly assemble a ramen dish, and even how to properly admire the ramen while you eat. That was actually brought out with great humor in the movie Tampopo. But the noodle that the dish revolves around is actually Chinese in origin, probably introduced to Japan by Chinese immigrants circa 1859 within the Yokohama Chinatown. And this is according to the Yokohama Ramen Museum, which is definitely a place that as we eat, we'll need to go as soon as possible. Early Chinese versions of ramen were based on long wheat-based noodles served in pork broth and then topped with slices of roasted pork. Restaurants and food stalls selling foods from Canton and Shanghai in Japan served bowls of cut noodles with toppings and a salted broth around 1900. There's also good evidence that the first specialty ramen shop opened in Yokohama in 1910. Ramen's rise in popularity in post-war Japan correlates with American occupation after World War II from 1945 to 1952, coincidentally at the same time of Japan's worst rice harvest in 42 years. So to combat food shortages, U.S. flooded the Japanese food market with cheap American wheat flour, and that swiftly found its way into ramen noodles. Now, this is kind of a big deal because rice is such a huge, substantial part of Southeast Asian diets, especially in Japan. In fact, sushi as we know it, the fish is meant to highlight the rice. Rice is not meant to highlight the fish. To circumvent rice in a Japanese diet is very difficult. And so the fact that wheat flour found its way into ramen noodles and then became such a dominant force in Japanese culture, culinary culture, this is, you know, a pretty big deal. And ramen got a global lift when Taiwanese Japanese entrepreneur and founder of Nissan Foods, Momofuku Ando, invented instant ramen, known in 1958 as chicken ramen, and then later on, cup noodles in 1966. Nissan Foods started producing top ramen in its plant in Gardena, California in 1972. And this is the first instant ramen produced and sold in the United States. A packet of instant ramen typically contains one, a block of pre-cooked and dried noodles, and two, a packet of flavoring, sometimes as a powder or as a paste. The noodles themselves are composed of flour, occasionally now wheat flour, starch, water, salt, and kansui, or onsui, K-A-N-S-U-I, which is a type of alkaline mineral water containing sodium carbonate and potassium carbonate. It's kansui that gives ramen noodles their characteristic yellow color and their elasticity. If you're familiar with a block of, of instant ramen noodles, that kind of wavy texture actually comes from machinery. By drying the noodle block, either by frying or air drying, makes submerging the noodles into boiling water a fast process to rehydrate the noodles. So that's the trademark three-minute dish that you can get by cooking the noodles in water and then adding the seasoning packet. Frankly, for me, the magic in instant ramen is the seasoning packet, which commonly contains salt, monosodium glutamate, seasonings, and sugar. I distinctly remember Top Ramen commercials in the 1980s citing the wide variety of vegetables, herbs, and spices that go into ramen seasoning, 
And I tried to use this as a selling point to my mom to let me eat ramen as a part of my diet, but she countered that I would always need to eat a piece of fresh fruit first. So poor mom, she was really destined to lose this fight. Instant ramen is coveted all over the world. According to the World Instant Noodles Association, China tops global demand for instant noodles with 46.35 billion servings in 2020. In one year, over 46 billion servings of ramen, followed by Indonesia with 12.64 billion servings. The U.S. ranked sixth in the world at 5.05 billion servings, just behind India, Japan, and Vietnam. Even though I love my instant ramen, I have since graduated to the finer versions than the speedy three-minute instant variety, but I do still keep packets of instant ramen in the house for those days when I'm feeling nostalgic or simply want that umami salty flavor that is inherent in an instant ramen. I have tried a myriad of ways to add real protein and vegetables to instant ramen. Mom would be proud. And some of my favorites are mixing in beaten eggs or actually leftover Chinese or Thai food. I think that's also delicious. I also make my own spicy instant ramen by adding chili infused sesame oil, or sometimes I cook up some shiitake mushrooms with garlic chili sauce and mix that in. Mr. Momofuku Ando died in 2007, but he did live to see instant ramen voted by Japan as one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. So I have some interesting notes I want to add about the, the process of researching for this topic. As you know, Leif, research for As We Eat is a labor of love, and so I've been steadily and judiciously adding to my food history reference collection since we started. And to prepare for this episode, I consulted at least 10 different books, most of them general surveys of food history, but only one of my books referenced ramen. That is The Oxford Companion to Food by Alan Davidson. To me, this points to actually two interesting things. One, I need to continue to diversify my reference collection. And two, instant ramen is actually this kind of weird creature of a modern culture where we admire something that has a larger cultural impact than it does culinary impact. There are very few chefs out there, I can imagine, that would build their food empire on the back of an instant ramen. But kids today, they buy shirts with ramen, you know, the, the ramen packet logo on them. There are pillows that look like the cup noodles, styrofoam cup. There's all kinds of iconography and pop cultural references to ramen. Just about everybody in the U.S., probably has some story about instant ramen that it was like the thing that they ate in college when they were a starving student. When I worked on a college campus, the Greek organizations would recruit by passing out free packets of instant ramen. I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about what are the foods that really are almost non-foods, but they have this kind of massive global following. There's a lot of foods that are popular, don't get me wrong. Curries are universally loved around the world, but curries have nutritional, culinary, and cultural value. Ramen, I would argue, maybe not so much in comparison. It's almost akin to maybe a candy bar. What are your thoughts about this? I love this topic. And I, I think you're right. I think that everybody has a story about ramen. As a single mother, I always had ramen around. Mm -hmm. And I, I would always add stuff to it. But it was something that was very affordable for me to add to and bulk up the food that I was able to buy. Yes. 
I don't know that you can compare it to a candy bar because they're so separate. They're so different. A candy bar has a completely different purpose for being. Yeah. The funny thing about ramen, it was something that was so easy for a kid to make after school as a meal or a snack. I actually didn't know much about what it was meant to be a convenience for. I haven't gone into this much, but Japan had massive food shortages after World War II. It took a long time for the country to stabilize and to get on its feet. And the United States did contribute a lot, which changed the face of some Japanese food as well. When I told my husband I was doing this topic, his contribution, because he is actually quite a fan of Japanese culture in general, is, yeah, it, it kept a lot of people alive in mm. Japan. But I had a hard time finding that information to share with us today. So I don't know if it's really anecdote or if it's actual fact. It's just some stuff that's a little hazy. The ramen waters are a little murky. But when I did have my first fresh ramen, I was, I mean, even more hooked. I had my first ramen meal at Wagamama in London, and my mind was blown. And since then, we now have specialty ramen shops all over the world. And I've eaten ramen in England and I've eaten ramen all over the United States. And I love that I actually have a ramen restaurant in my community. So obviously ramen has taken hold of our culinary imagination. It's just funny to me how a convenience version came first. We effectively have a collective memory of eating ramen, even if we've not eaten ramen together. So I am crazy curious about sour salt. What can you tell me about sour salt? Oh, my goodness. So this is a very interesting ingredient. And when I started the research on this, I couldn't find it in a store. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to have to do some research on it. And this was a topic that was suggested by my good friend, Holly. Yay, Holly. <laughs> Yay, Holly. I suspect that the reason is that she has a family recipe for borscht that calls for sour salt. And when she shared the recipe with me, she told me that it was pretty important part of the recipe, but it was becoming harder and harder to find, which I did experience as well. So when I started the research on this seemingly elusive ingredient, I was surprised to learn that I did, in fact, actually have it in my pantry. Really? And I have used it very frequently and didn't even know that it was sour salt. Sour salt is actually citric acid. What? <laughs> I know. And it's something that I use when I can. And it actually has a pretty interesting and long history. It was discovered in the 8th century by an Arabic chemist, Jabir Ibn Hayyan, and I certainly hope I'm pronouncing that right, who is considered the father of Arabic chemistry and one of the founders of the modern pharmacy. And his part in discovering the acid was through his invention of a chemical process called synthesis of acids. And I was going to try and explain this process, but I, it, I, yeah, I couldn't. That is a whole other podcast for a whole other time. It's a completely different podcast <laughs> hosted by somebody entirely different. Yes. This Swedish chemist, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, who was also credited with discovering oxygen, figured out how to isolate citric acid from lemon juice in the late 1700s. And it would take almost another hundred years for citric acid to be manufactured industrially. This is in large part due to the Italian citrus industry, 
or really the Muslim conquerors who built these really complex irrigation systems in Sicily that would allow future farmers to efficiently grow citrus crops. Because they were able to control the flow of water, they were able to force the trees to flower and fruit multiple times in a growing season. So they had this plethora of lemons that were available to them. That's like heaven. <laughs> Seriously. So the next big development in citric acid history is the discovery that molds like penicillium and Aspergillus niger, which totally sounds like it belongs in Harry Potter, right. <laughs> could make citric acid from sugars. So it's a process known as filamentous fungal fermentation. Even scientists love alliteration. Essentially, the mold cultures are grown on a medium that's rich in glucose. So things like molasses and hydrolyzed cornstarch. This process is still in use to produce citric acid today. So that's the history of citric acid in a nutshell. When I was trying to determine why it was called sour salt, I stumbled on an article in the Washington Post called Food 101 that explained, quote, Every acid is a unique chemical, but it can have dozens of derivatives called salts, end quote. So essentially, every acid is a parent to a family of salts. So based on this, it seems like the parent acid was actually mislabeled as the child salt because citric acid is actually the parent of a family of salts. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, actually it does. Okay. Back to borscht. This dish is a great example of the sweet and sour combinations that wind themselves throughout many cultures, and especially Jewish foods. So you've got tamarind and pomegranate syrups that play roles in the cuisine, stuffed cabbage, pickled herring, sweet and sour carp. Borscht typically has a souring agent to help balance out that sweetness of the beets. And traditionally in Eastern Europe, specifically in Ashkenazi recipes, this was done with a beet vinegar and it was typically homemade. During the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, America would become home to an estimated 1.5 million Jews in what was called the Great Jewish Migration. And as we've discussed in some of our other episodes, as people move, they adapt to the ingredients that are more readily available in that region. And this is true of sour salt. Because the fermented beet juice wasn't as available here in the States, it was replaced with sour salt or citric acid, which was being mass produced. So balancing the sweetness and adding punch to a dish is only one of citric acid's superpowers. As I mentioned before, I use it in canning to lower the pH in fruits and fruit preserves. It also helps to prevent oxidation in fruits. It's used in the cosmetic industry. It's used to emulsify food products like ice cream and yogurt. It's used in insecticides and disinfectants. It's also great on the rim of a margarita Ooh. glass. Yeah. And much like vinegar, it can be used in household cleaning. As Faye Levy, one of the best-known Jewish cookbook authors, shared with me when I asked her about the sour salt, she told me that her mother's advice to her was to keep sour salt on hand to remove burns from your pots and pans. You put some of the sour salt and water in the pan, heat it, and it takes the burns away. In Faye's words, it works. You can also use it to remove mineral deposits in your coffee maker or your dishwasher. So, there you have it. 
So much more information than I ever thought I would find out about the ingredient that I didn't even know I had lurking in my pantry. So forgive my ignorance, but that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. Couldn't you use citric acid in cheese making to effectively curdle the milk, but to your advantage? Do I have that right? Yes. Yep. Awesome. You do. Yep. So they use it in ricotta and they use it in paneer. In that case, I too have sour salt in my house and I never realized it. So how would an average person, a home cook, start to experiment with sour salt aside from borscht? Or with borscht, perhaps (laughs) that is the perfect starter. I think that the borscht is the perfect starter. There's also a lot of recipes out there for stuffed cabbage that Mm. has a sour sauce Mm -hmm. that goes over it that uses sour salt Mm. in it as well. So would that, so would it would appear in a recipe as sour salt, like add sour salt? Generally, because they are older, they, where you find these are in these older heritage recipes that call for sour salt. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. If I'm struggling to find sour salt on my shelf, I could actually just go look for some citric acid and be good. It's a roll. Absolutely. I had no idea. That is really fascinating. And Holly, thank you so much for the suggestion. I love learning new stuff. Honestly, after I picked the topic, I was really terrified that I would have nothing to say. (laughs) And so I was just really pleasantly surprised to find out what I did find out about Excellent. How can we put ramen and and sour salt together? Can we do like a quick pickle of something? I I wonder if you could. We'll have to ask our friend Ken Obala, who is the fermentation king. You could also pan fry paneer and put the paneer in the ramen. Especially with like the chili infused sesame oil. Yeah. So it's mixing cultures, but yeah. I think we're okay with I think that. I think everyone's okay with that at this point in, in our world. Can you imagine Ireland without the Andean potato? And that's something that we covered in our potato episode. Mm. Can you imagine mm-hmm. Indian curry without the tomato, which is not from the Indian subcontinent originally, right. and yet is now a massive part of Indian curry cuisine? That That's the truth of it, is that our food moves very rapidly. And before you know it, new ingredients are being incorporated and new flavors. In 100 years, it'll be like, I've never had instant ramen without paneer. (laughs) Right. Well, if all this salty talk has you feeling like you need a glass of water, rest easy because our next episode is going to go in a much sweeter direction when we reprise our pies episode. I'm so excited about this Me episode. Me too. There are some tasty treats in store for us. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>